Welcome to Exodus Files, session number three. We are doing a wonderful session tonight called The Ten Plagues of Egypt, Ten Plagues for Ten Gods. And I'm excited that you guys have joined me again for another study on the book of the Exodus. So for those of y'all that have not been here before, if this is your first time, we are working through a chronological look at the telling of the story of the Exodus. And this study is founded in the idea that the scriptures are an accurate uh, telling of historical events that went on in history. Sorry, I'm fixing my, uh, my discussion comments so I don't get trolls on Facebook. Sorry. So, um, ooh, I'm kind of like, I got a new blue screen tonight. And so if I get a little, my eyes get a little crazy because they're blue. I'm not sure this is going to work. So excuse my crazy eyes. But I'm grateful that you guys are here joining me. And we are walking through chronologically the book of the Exodus. Um, oh, that's going to bug me. I'm going to see if I can fix that real quick. My chroma key. It's a little bit too, there we go. We'll go with that. I won't spend too much more time on that. So we're walking through the books of the Exodus. Sorry, guys, I was a little rushed tonight. Um, and tonight we are looking at the, the story of the plagues of Egypt. So the very first time, uh, the very first time that we, the first study, we looked at the, the Acts chapter 7, the history of the telling of the story of the Exodus. Stephen, the first martyr for the faith, was someone that connected all of the Old Testament stories from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob into Joseph and Moses and Exodus in particular, all the way up to David and Solomon. He connected that to Jesus, the Messiah. And that raised Jesus off of his feet when Stephen saw him standing before the right hand of the Father, receiving him into heaven. And this is based on the idea that to really understand who God is, then we are called to connect the fullness of the scriptures into who he says he is in the New Testament. And so that's what really the purpose of this study is, is to show you the depth of the Exodus story and the scriptures and then connect it to the truth that was revealed. So the second week, we looked at the possibilities of Moses being in um, Egyptian history. Now we talked uh, about him being in the in the 18th dynastic period with King Tut is the sort of final uh, punchline of that. The pharaohs at the time, the Thutmose dynasty, Thutmose and Amenhotep's, um, not the 19th dynasty in the 1300s, the Ramses dynasty. And that was the idea. But more than that, it was looking at the biblical foundation and the story that God was pulling his people out of a system. And that the system had gotten Moses, who was a Hebrew, who was being systematically exterminated through first um, selective partial birth abortions and then straight to infanticide. The Hebrews were being selected for genocide by a by a scared Pharaoh who was worried they were going to be more powerful than them. And Moses was taken into the house of the Pharaoh, the enemy into the house of Pharaoh and made out to be one of their own. So we told that story, and I'm not going to reteach that, even though I, I love it and I'm sort of rolling on it. 
So tonight we are doing the plagues and the 10 plagues of Egypt and what they represent, because ultimately each plague deals with a very specific God of Egypt. The God wasn't just randomly sending plagues to the earth. He had a message. And every plague has a message, and every plague deals with a God. And you'll see tonight that we work our way from the bottom up to the top. And I also want to draw some pretty uh, remarkable, I think they're remarkable, you can be the judge, uh, some interesting parallels between um, our modern day situation in the United States and even globally and the plagues of Egypt and where I think we may be. Um, and the reason that I make these biblical connections between modernity and ancient history and the stories of God is that these stories are not just history, they're memory. Okay? They're stories about a shared identity because we all, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jewish brothers and sisters, and Christians and Catholics around the world who claim the name of Jesus, um, we share an identity of a God who has been revealed through the scriptures throughout the years. And God's revelation in the scriptures are not, are not just one-time events. They are articulations and an explanation of his heart, of who God is. And so as we discover more of who God is, we become familiar with his ways. And then his ways get um, shown in in shown again in history. Sorry, I'm getting distracted because I just saw myself like fade out. I thought I was going to solve a little problem I was having with this blue screen tonight, but that does not appear to be working. So I will. So excuse me if I fade in and out of my Red Sea moment. All right, that's enough getting squirreled away. So I want to launch into the study here. Um, and so uh, first, if you guys are not connected and you want to get connected with me, you can text the word Exodus to this number here on your screen. You just text the number. Uh, this is a service that I use. It does not give me your cell phone number. And this is not my cell phone number. So don't worry. I'm not going to be creeping you at 2 a.m. texting you links to come buy DVD series or something. But this is a great way to get connected via text message outside of Facebook. And those that do connect here on this on this channel, at the end of the night, I will give you a PDF document that you can download of all the notes. That's the only place I'm going to put it. Um, so I don't want to put it on my website and make it public. If you sign up here, text Exodus to the number on your screen, and I will send you that document later on tonight. Um, so that being said, let me go back here and get rid of my community number. Wrong one. All right. So we are looking here at session number three, 10 plagues for 10 gods. So before I launch in here, I just want to say hey to all y'all that are watching. Got folks from Aurora, Ohio, San Francisco, Florida, Virginia Beach, Jersey, Pittsburgh, Vermont. Oh, man, you guys are all over the place. Ohio, more Ohio, um, Springfield, Virginia, North Carolina. This is great, y'all. I really appreciate you guys jumping on and participating with all of this. So... Tonight, the 10 plagues for 10 gods. And I'm going to pray real quick if you guys would join me. 
King Jesus, we thank you, God, that you love us and that you know us, Father, and that you are speaking life into us, Father, and you are showing yourself strong, Father, but not just strong, present. Father, and we thank you that you are present in our lives, that you are present in our hearts. Father, we ask for your manifest present presence to be with us as we pursue your scriptures, pursue your understanding. Give us wisdom and revelation that we can discern the height, the width, the depth, the breadth of the love of God, the Father that's revealed through the Son, Jesus. So we thank you, King Jesus. We bless you in your precious and holy name, I pray. Amen. All right, Canada. Got some friends in Canada. My my family, uh, extended family, lives in British Columbia. So I love my Canadian friends up there. Um, all right. So tonight we're looking at 10 plagues for 10 gods. And let's read the scriptures here. First and foremost, I want to take a look at this because um, this is Exodus 6, 1 through 8. There's three parts to every study. Tonight, there's just two. But the first three parts is number one, there's the scriptures. Number two, then we'll look at history, ancient history, some archaeology. And then number three, we usually look at Google Earth and I take you in and show you these places. Tonight, there's no Google Earth because there's a lot here. So I'm going to read this. And this is Exodus 6, 1 through 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will let them go. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. And the Lord spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. Okay, and so this is a big moment, y'all. And I'm going to try not to overhype this. But I love this moment because this is a significant moment in the life of Israel. Because something happens here. When the Lord says, oh, it's killing me. I keep looking up at the screen. I keep seeing my skin fade in and out. All right, focus. Sorry, that's more distracting, I think, for me than it is for you. But the Lord says this, that by my name, the Lord, I was not known to them. If y'all don't know, this name, the Lord, is called, we call it in English, the Tetragrammaton. It's the yad Hey vav Hey, The four characters in Hebrew that don't have vowels, four characters that reveal the name of God. And this is a pretty sacred name. A lot of Orthodox Jewish people still today don't say Yahweh, the yad Hey vav Hey. We say Yahweh in English. Uh, Christians do, many of us. Um, but many of the Orthodox Jews don't say the name. If you ever wondered, if you ever see a, like a Messianic church or a, a Temple Bethel, a Jewish synagogue where they have the name of God, they usually don't use the word God. Um, they Baruch Hashem. But they, uh, if you see the G slash D, that's just an honoring to take out the vowels in honor of our Jewish brothers and sisters. A lot of Messianic congregations do that. But it comes from this, that they, that they take the name of God, the Tetragrammaton, the Yahweh name here, serious. It's very serious. It's very holy. And this is a moment when God reveals himself. And that yod Hey vav Hey. One of my friends in Israel explained this to me, and I can't tell you all the specifics of it. I don't have time and I don't remember. But he said each of those characters means something. 
And when you put those characters together, the name of God literally means the one who is embodied or the God who is embodied. And so that's a key moment when when the Lord comes to Abraham and or to Moses and says, look, all of your people leading up to this point, they knew me as El Shaddai, God Almighty. Okay, they knew me as El Shaddai, the mighty God, um, God Almighty. But by my name, I am or the Lord or Yahweh. I didn't I wasn't known to them. So here's the key, y'all, is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew about God. They knew his power, that his mighty acts. But God was turning the tables here now, and he was saying, you're not just going to know about me, you're going to know the I am. I am coming now to be embodied in front of you, that the things you've heard about me in the past are now being manifest in front of you. Okay, and this was the God that Abraham or that Moses was going to be taking in and declaring to the Egyptians to let his people go. Not the mighty God who does things from afar, but the I am that I am, the one who is embodied in front of them. So this is a big moment for them. Let's go on. So Exodus 4, 6, verse 4. I also have established my covenant with them, the Hebrews, to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I've heard the groanings of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great judgments. If you've ever celebrated a Seder meal, these are the I wills in the Seder meal. It's God's commitment that I will do this. He doesn't tell Moses, I need you to do anything. He said, I will do these things. Why? Because I've remembered my covenant. So God comes as a covenant keeping God to deliver his covenant people. And he makes these statements about what he will do, regardless of what anybody else does in response to him. Okay, and this is the beginning of an unraveling, I think, of a narrative that I think is false. There is a narrative in Christianity that the New Testament is grace and the Old Testament is law. Now, there's some truth to that. It would take a long study to unpack it. But what that usually turns into is that the New Testament is a happy, loving God, and the Old Testament is an angry, mean, vengeful God, and that the Jews had salvation by works, and the Christians have salvation by faith. Oh my gosh, my face is crazy. I got to fix this, y'all. Um, so, But that just isn't the case, okay? The Jewish tradition has never been salvation by works. That was not the testimony of the Torah. Here, God says, I will come and keep a promise to you. He doesn't say, if you do this, then I'll do this. He says, no, I'm coming to fulfill my promise to give you a covenant land, and I will do these things. And we'll see in coming weeks that God sets them free first, and then he gives them the law. Okay, he doesn't give them one commandment for every good deed they do in Egypt. He sets them free, fills them, redeems them, draws them to himself, and then he delivers the law. This is a key understanding in the scripture. It's a big thing. So some of you are asking what's going on with the eyes. I keep explaining it, but I have a new blue screen. So sorry, 
I could stop and rework it or just keep going. So it's fading in now. Oh, that really bugs me. I want to fix it. I could tweak my um, I could tweak my settings, but you guys probably is it too distracting? Let's try that. All right. Sorry, I was rushing in to get this done. So let's move on to the next piece of scripture here. So God continues on. And he says, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land, which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. Okay, so this scripture, I just wanted to draw our attention in the text to the fact. Um, all right, it's not distracting. Good. Thanks. I will stop worrying about it then. In case you haven't noticed, I'm a perfectionist. So, so the point of all of this was to, was to show you in the text that God is moving into a new place of relationship, moving into a new place of understanding for his people, that he's moving them out of just knowing about God, and he's moving them in to knowing who God is. How many of y'all know the difference between knowing about a thing and knowing what that thing is? How many of you can say that you knew about President Trump or you know about President Biden? Yeah, we, we've read their stuff. Maybe we followed him. Maybe we voted for him. Maybe we worked hard to not vote for him, to get other people to not vote for him, whatever the him is. Um, like we know about them. But how many of you guys actually know President Biden? Or know Donald Trump? Like you spent time with him that you know his heart and character. Not a whole lot of us. And I think that's part of the problem in our mainstream world, particularly as it relates to idols, to kings and uh, rock stars. And like we know about them. We know the great things they do and we idolize them. And we're like, yeah, I know that guy. But we don't know that guy. We don't know that girl. We know about them. We know their exploits, but we don't know their heart. And then our culture even says, you know, character isn't that important. Just talk to me about the exploits. Character doesn't matter. That's what they said about Clinton for so many years. That's what they say about Obama. And then suddenly with Trump, that changes. Well, let's not talk about what he's doing. Let's talk about his character. I've never understood that. I'm not going to go there. I already went there. I'm going to not stay there. So here's the deal is that um, God is moving his people into encountering him and not just knowing about him, but discovering the depth of who he is. And I want us to read and look at these plagues over the next hour in this context. Okay, this is not a demonstration of power alone. This is a revelation of the heart of a God who is moving in amongst his people to dwell with them in their midst with pillars of fire and clouds and Shekinah presence, the glory at the Shekan, the dwelling place of God between the cherubim in the in the Ark of the Covenant that gets created at Sinai. This is God who is mighty moving in among us. These are the festivals of tabernacles. This is the stuff that we begin to see. And this is the Yahweh, the one who is embodied. And if you've met Jesus and you understand the scriptures, you can see that this is leading towards that. So that's the context for tonight.
And so with that said, I want to go into and look at each one of the plagues. Okay. And each one of these plagues deals, like I said, with a specific God of Egypt. So plague number one, usually I kind of read these plagues, but we got a lot to cover. Most of the time I break this up into two weeks, but I'm kind of cranking through it so that we can get to, um, we can get all this done before we get to uh, Easter or Passover this year. So the plagues of Egypt, number one, the plague Nile to blood. So plague number one, um, actually, this plague deals specifically with the major source in Egypt. And the primary gods over the Nile are these characters. Kanum, he was the god of the Nile source, and then Anukit, Kanum's wife. And these were the gods of the deities. And the Nile was a big deal and still is a big deal in Egypt. The Nile represents provision, nourishment, food, sustenance. In other words, the economy. In a very real, tangible sense, the Nile is the economy of Egypt. Everything about the Nile, everything about Egypt, as far as livestock, production, wealth, sustenance, surrounds the Nile River. So when the Nile River turns to blood, this, of course, represents death and the destruction of that um, provision. So every year in Egypt, the Nile does what it's, there's a situation or thing that happens in Egypt called the induation or the flood. And every year, the Nile that, that headwaters are down deep in the heart of Africa, the Blue Nile all the way down into Uganda, that rains flood in the central portion of Africa. And all of these rains begin to wash water and more than just water, they wash nutrient-rich silt down towards Egypt. And there's four cataracts of the Nile in the ancient days. They've created dams now. But these cataracts would fill up with this natural soil. And then when the water, and they, they become dams with all the soil. And when that floods got so heavy, the dams would break and wash all of this water out. And so the Nile, in a very tangible sense, is the economy of Egypt. And so when God destroys the economy of Egypt, he's sending a message to Egypt. He says, I'm powerful over your provision. And to Israel, he's also sending a message. Israel, I am your provision. Okay, this is the beginning of God's liberation of his people. And you've probably heard it said, but it's catchy enough to repeat. It's one thing to get out of Egypt. It's another thing to get Egypt out of you. And that's the beginning. He's getting the people out of Egypt, and then he's sending a message to Israel trying to get Egypt out of his people. Let me be your provision. Now, in each one of these, um, not miracles, but plagues, in the beginning, Pharaoh is not happy that this is being done. Or he's not happy the whole time. But in the beginning, he's got these magicians. And the magicians, they try and duplicate the provision. They duplicate the magic. Um, using magic, they try to duplicate the, the plague of God. And so here in this first one, Pharaoh tells his magicians to do this. And they are able to successfully duplicate the miracle of God, the demonstration of all of this. Now, 
I think that that's an interesting parallel here, y'all, because when God comes to set us free, I think so many times one of the first things, if not the first thing he deals with is him as our provider. He comes to set us free from the things that are holding us in bondage. And most of the time, we are enslaved to money. We're enslaved. The Bible calls it mammon. We're enslaved to stuff, especially Western believers who have all kinds of stuff. You know, the heavenly man, this guy in China who is in prison, he's a really remarkable fellow. He's got some interesting stories. I met him once in Jerusalem. He was asked about all these miracles that he's seen. And he says, why do the miracles that you saw in China not happened in the West? And he said, air conditioning. It's kind of a cheeky answer. But it's, you have so much, we have so much luxury that we even condition the air in our homes or the air in our cars, right? We, we control our environments down to the temperature degree. So when God comes to set us free, he begins to deal with provision. If he wants to liberate a nation, he's got to deal with the economic structures that hold people in bondage, enslaved to the rat race, to the ideas. I could go off on the economy right now. But one of the reasons that you guys are seeing, if you're watching these sorts of things, the, the GameStop thing and the wild currency fluctuations inside of the Bitcoin cryptocurrency world, the reason that stuff is happening is that people are trying to get out of the economy that holds them in bondage, and they're creating new means and methods to do that. So God says, let me get you out of Egypt. And the first thing is that it begins to deal with the economy of Egypt. And so... But Egypt duplicates that. So let's take a look at this, because more than just the Nile, the scriptures also say a couple of things about the other pieces uh, in Egypt, other rivers. And I want to show you this. And and I'm not I don't feel like I'm reaching to try and make these connections. All right. I'm going to turn off my comments. Um, I'm too distracted today. Okay. I know I'm disappearing into my background. I can't fix it while I'm live. I didn't get it done and it just kind of keeps fading in and out. So for new people, I'm I'm disappearing. I know. But for the um for the Nile event, it's not just the Nile River that gets hit. It's not just the economy, the general grand economy. There's some other stuff and I want to show you how specific God is dealing with this issue of provision in our lives and dealing with the economic system that holds us in bondage. Okay. So look at this. This is what the Lord says that goes on Exodus 7, 17. It says, by this, you will know that I am the Lord with the staff that is in my hand. I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. So we heard that. So the Nile turns to blood and this is what happens. The Nile turns to blood the fish in the Nile will die and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, not just the Nile, but the waters. And then he lists the waters in order over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even the wooden buckets and stone jars. 
Okay, so God is real specific here. All right, so he says, I am turning these things to blood. It's not just the Nile, it's the waters. It's the streams, canals, ponds, reservoirs, buckets, and stone jars. I want to show you guys this. This is really interesting to me because he is very intense about dealing with economic systems. And let me show you this. So first, he starts with the streams. We know the Nile, and then he starts with the streams. It's up over here on the right side. So if we think about it just from a natural perspective, what, what's a stream? Well, the stream is a natural tributary of the Nile, right? It's, you know, natural outworking, one of the tributaries. What's a pond? Well, a pond is where a stream kind of ends in a depression and then it creates a natural storage of the Nile. What are canals? Well, they're the same thing as streams, but they're man-made. So these are man-made community redirections of the Nile. If you want some of the water from the Nile and you don't live by the Nile, how do you do it? Well, you dig a canal, right? It's much better than trying to carry water on your head for dozens of miles. This is what people do in Africa and other, other nations that, are, that struggle with clean water, right? We dig a canal down to the source. We call it a well, right? It's a man-made um, redirection of the source. Reservoirs, same thing, man-made man-made redirection of, of the, or storage of the Nile. And then the last thing here, well, two more things, wooden buckets. This is man-made community usage of the Nile. Okay. And so the community usage of the Nile is in Egypt, there were these things called shadufs. And the shadoof was a cantilevered thing that you can still, it gets used today, is it's got a big wooden bucket and they lower it down, they scoop it into the stream or the canal and they pull up the water and they use it to then water their crops or fill up other buckets and things. So the wooden bucket was about community usage of the tributaries or of the Nile, okay? And then the last one here, is stone jars. And stone jars are your daily, man-made daily usage of the Nile. Okay, so this is, the stone jars hold water longer, they don't leak and expand, but they're heavier, so you can't have big stone jars. These are your daily usage, the daily vessels for um, containers of water. Now, let me, let me make this not metaphorical anymore. I guess not literal, I'm going to make it metaphorical here, because this is what I think God is saying. First, he comes and turns the Nile to blood. He messes up the economy. He begins to destabilize the economy. But then he says, I'm going to also deal with the streams. And these are the natural tributaries of the Nile. So maybe these streams are people that are born into a home of wealth, right? They didn't create the economy, but they basically are born into an economic system where they don't have to worry about really anything. You know, they've got plenty of wealth. They never worry about it. They live on a stream, okay? And even today, people that live uh, in nice homes, the values of waterfront homes are more than non-waterfront homes. So God says, all right, it's not just the economy, but it's also the people that have a lot of wealth. And if we look at the 2008 global stock crash, 
you know, the first thing that began to get hit was the economy. Well, the stock market got hit because of a number of reasons. And then the first people that begin to get hit are the ones that have money invested in the stocks. You know, and it's why I sort of, ah, that's why I sort of liked the, um, the, the Robin Hood thing with the GameStop deal is that for every $11 that GameStop went up, the trust funds that did that raid, which I don't think is very good, they lost a billion dollars. So when you've got a ton of money invested and things fluctuate, you lose a lot of it very quickly. Then these pawns, these are family wealth. So when you live with wealth and you utilize wealth, you have to store your wealth. So these pawns then represent sort of the next tier of family wealth or sovereign wealth funds or global funds that store the creation of massive amounts of economic uh, prosperity, streams, massive amounts of economic prosperity, pawns, funds, family wealth, sovereign wealth funds. These are the man-made or these are the natural storage places for this wealth. Now, that's the 1% of the 1%. So the economic prices comes and it hits the 1% of the 1%. Now they're not as affected by it. They take a bigger loss, but they have more margin. This is when it begins to get hard, is that it begins then to affect, the economic shaking begins to affect the canals. And what are the canals? How do you redirect wealth from family wealth and sovereign funds, people with more money? How does the average person redirect wealth into their own lives? Well, they work. Canals are jobs, jobs for the common folk. Okay, so this is how the economic system works. The economic system starts to shake and the people that are born into wealth or have huge amounts of wealth that are stored, that begins to, to ripple down. And when people that have a bunch of stores of wealth, they stop spending the stores of wealth. When that starts drying up, they stop spending it on employees. So the jobs, the canals begin to dry up and die. The canals get bloody. Jobs for the common folk begin to collapse. Then what happens after that? Well, once you lose your job, you begin to consume all of your stores, all the reservoirs where you stored your money. And for Americans, 80% of middle American, middle class wealth is stored in your home. So the reservoirs are the means of keeping the money we made. So this is, again, what happened. There was economic shaking. It had to do with bad banking deals. When Clinton did the Community Reinvestment Act in the late 90s and the price of homes became unhinged with the price of inflation, the federal government, after all of that, became the largest mortgage holder in the United States, landholder of mortgages, and people began to default on their homes because the jobs dried up, because the family wealth dried up, because the stock market and the economic system was shaking and people lost their jobs and then they lost their homes. It's the same thing that's going on right now with COVID. Same kind of system, economic shaking, right? And then these wooden buckets, this man-made community, this is the way then if people start losing their homes, they stop paying taxes and then cities start to go bankrupt. And these community usage of the money that individuals have, you know, sometimes People run their cities into the ground, even without an economic crisis, and force you to pay $15 as an average you know, minimum wage. But the cities start to dry up. 
And then we start having economic crises in our city, and that goes down ultimately to your daily consumption. This changes how you eat, how you drink, what you do with your time and your money. Okay. And I think that this is pretty interesting that, um, that when God comes and deals with Egypt, he literally lays out in order how an economic collapse would happen in a country and the order of all of it. And I just, I just, I just think it's pretty wild. But God does this on purpose, okay? And I don't believe for one second that God sent COVID. I think, well, I'm not going to say what I think about COVID, right? But there is an economic shaking going down right now across the globe. And we are being forced into a moment where we need to begin to cry out to God for provision if you're not doing this already. If you're not doing this already, cry out to God to be your provider because the temptation to live in Egypt, if you want to stay there, will be to duplicate this miracle. And I love that the scriptures say the magicians duplicated it because if you want to duplicate God's provision in your life in the shaking, if you want to rage against the shaking and rage against everything and say, I can do this, God calls this to me, I don't need him, I'll do it myself. Well, you're participating with the magic of the culture that you live in. And I think that God first comes to deal with this because if you can't trust him for provision, if you're spending your life duplicating it, using your own magic, using your own skills and labor and your own beliefs and thoughts about yourself, rooting, you become the God, you become the one in power. But we're great kids and friends and employees, but we're awful gods. So don't be tempted in this era, in this time, to try and duplicate this. Cry out to God. Cry out to God, and he will bring deliverance. And I know if it looks empty and despondent right now, for so many. I played golf with a guy two days ago who told me about his daughter who committed suicide during COVID. She was on medications and had a number of problems with with her psychological makeup because of these meds, but 200 people a day, one statistic says, are committing suicide during COVID. This is tragic, y'all, because we try and duplicate what God is trying to say, I'm going to provide for you. And when we duplicate it and it fails and it fails again, we lose heart, we lose hope. And I'm not saying everybody that commits suicide doesn't believe in God or just lost hope. There's a lot of multifaceted complex issues surrounding that, especially with the opioid crisis and the stimulant crisis and mental health. Don't hear me criticizing those that that take their own lives at all. But the stakes are high. Okay, we need to stay connected to the father. So let's go on. The next plague, plague number two. Hope this is interesting. That one I spent a little bit more time on because it's the first and it's pretty foundational. Plague number two. And again, all of these are building, okay? So the god of the frogs was a pretty well-known god in Egypt. And her name, whoop, back here. Her name was Heket. And she was the froggy goddess. Here's her picture. And she was the goddess of fertility. So if you were 
uh, uh, an Egyptian and you wanted to have a nice big family, you would cry out to Heket, the goddess of fertility, to give you a boy because the firstborn son is very important in Egypt, like it was in the Jewish cultures, um, like it is still today. It's interesting. That's another topic. But frog number two, Heket, the goddess of fertility. And so what God does here is that he overruns Egypt with fertility. So I think this is kind of funny. It's a little cheeky. I imagine God sitting up in heaven uh, laughing about this stuff. The Bible says he sits in his heavens and he laughs at the kings of the earth. So maybe when he decided, you know what we ought to do? We, because, right, you know, God's the plural. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You know what we ought to do? We ought to overrun Egypt with the goddess that makes everything overrun because they're scared of my people who are getting too numerous that they're murdering them because they don't want them to overrun Egypt. And I, th I think that it may be cheeky, but it, it is funny because Pharaoh was worried that the Jewish people were overrunning this country and they had a God they prayed to fertility. So he sends an overrunning plague of fertility at the behest of the people they were afraid that they're going to overrun. I just think that's funny. And the Lord is saying something to Egypt in this moment. Okay. He's saying, look, Egypt, I'm powerful over you and bringing forth life. You think that you can control my people? I am the one that gives life. I am the one that gives life in the womb. Israel, my people, I am your life. Okay? So, let's think about this for a moment. Is this plague duplicated? Those of you all that have studied this before? Yes. This plague is duplicated. Think about this in terms of our culture. Do we duplicate? Do we duplicate? Um, bringing forth our own life? As a culture, have we put an exceedingly high value on being the one in control of your own womb, the one in control of bringing forth life, the one that, you know, all the way from contraception, contraceptives to abortion, to all different kinds of cultural beliefs about take control of your body, take control of your life, you're in charge of what's in your womb, Right. So we take charge of what's in control of our lives, but we don't take charge of our own desires because things don't just end up in wombs. OK, there's something very specific that has to happen for life to grow in the womb. And so we don't talk about dealing with our desires. We just talk about the effects of all of that. And that is what the Egyptian culture was doing, too. They duplicated this just like we do today. God comes to set us free and he deals with us as provision. If we don't duplicate that, then he wants to say, I'm the one that gives you life. Okay. Even your very life, your money and your life, they are mine. And if you can't trust God with your money in your life, you're going to have a hard time coming out of Egypt. Okay. This is duplicated by the magicians of Egypt. And I don't think it should be that way. The next plague, plague number three. This one is dust to gnats or lice. Oh, I've got someone that says you are Egyptian. Welcome. 
I would love to get to Egypt. I've never been. I was supposed to go. And then the Arab Spring happened. And so we didn't go. But I'm coming back someday. So I'll see you there. So plague number three, dust to gnats. So um, friend in Egypt, is there dust in Egypt? I've not been to Egypt, um, but I can't imagine that there is dust. I've seen the dust storms that blow in from the Sinai Peninsula and across the Arabian Peninsula into Egypt. Dust is everywhere, everywhere. So in plague number three, um, dust becomes alive. Gnats or lice in the scriptures, it says. And so this is interesting to me because these dust storms flow in usually from the east, from the eastern desert. If you can picture the Sinai Peninsula here, here's, well, over here is Israel and over here is Egypt. And these dust storms kind of wave in across the Red Sea into Egypt from the eastern desert. And so because these sandstorms roll in from the eastern desert, the ancient Egyptians had this god, Sokdu. And Sokdu was the god of the eastern desert. This is an image that comes out of this was found in King Tutankhamun's tomb, um, the, the gilt god Sokdu. And he was the god of the eastern desert, this terrifying storm um, that comes in from the eastern desert. And there was in the southern portion of the Sinai Peninsula, near the traditional Mount Sinai, is a place called Serebet el Chadim. And this here, it's Serebet el Chadim. This is an old um, grotto and religious shrine. And this location has a very interesting distinction that is the place where the first transitional forms from hieroglyphics into alphabets. The, the Aleph Bet begins to get developed. It's called Proto-Synatic um, language, and it is the early Proto-Synatic or early pre-Thamudic language. That's a whole other teaching. But here at Serebet El-Khadim, there's a grotto to soak to, okay? And so this is interesting to me because God is taking people out of Egypt into Midian, and I showed you guys where Midian is. It's in northern portion of Saudi Arabia today in the Tabuk province. Well, in order to come out of Egypt and to get into Midian, actually, we haven't done that yet. You have to go through the Sinai Peninsula, which is the eastern desert. So God is about ready to take his people out of Egypt straight into the fearsome God Sokdu's domain. He's taking them out of Egypt into the desert, straight into the eastern desert. And I think this is interesting because the message that he's sending to Egypt is that he's saying, I'm powerful to conquer the eastern desert and to bring forth life because he creates life out of the dust. Now, it was an annoying plague and it was pretty nasty and gnarly. And you can focus on some other areas of this. But I think it's significant that God created life out of dust. And he's trying to tell Israel, listen. Don't fear the eastern desert. I am your life. I'm taking you into the eastern desert right now. But do not be afraid. I am your life in the desert. So those that know this story, were they able to duplicate this? They tried. The magicians tried to duplicate this, but they were not able to. And when they weren't able to, they looked and they said, this has to be the finger of God. 
Y'all, I love this moment because you can duplicate your own provision. You can duplicate your own womb. You can control what goes on in your womb. You can control bringing forth life. But when you try and bring the dust to life to create death, to create the bring the dead things to life, you won't be able to succeed in doing that. But when you let God take care of you. And when God begins to breathe life into the dead things of your life, the world will look at you and say, that has to be God. And for me, this is the reason to trust God. This is the reason to trust God so that the world will look at your life and say, that has to be God. This person trusts in something And I'm watching life come out of death. How is that possible? I've tried to do that myself. I can't duplicate this. This has to be God. So the more we learn to trust God in these specific ways, the more the world will look and say, that's God. He's moving in your life. He's moving in your midst. Next plague. Number four flies. Now, in all of my study, again, I, I I take the scriptures, and this is sort of my teaching style for this book. I do preach on Sundays and do other kinds of teaching, but for this study, I take the biblical truths, I do historical and archaeological research, and I draw conclusions and analogous connections about the character and nature of God that we can come to know and trust. So I'm not elevating this history to the same level as the scriptures. Okay, so these are my hypotheses about these gods. I'm giving you accurate facts about the gods in Egyptian history. You can go and study it for yourself. Um, Some people have done this and they come to different conclusions. That's my perfunctory disclaimer for plague number four, because the word fly could mean beetle or something else. It's not necessarily a fly like we know. Those words don't always translate. And I couldn't really find a fly god in Egypt. Um, or a beetle god, although scarabs are a pretty big part of the Egyptian pantheon. But our scriptures say it was flies. And so we know that there is a lord of the flies, if you've read the book, with Piggy and the conch shell. Uh, but Baal was called the lord of the flies. And this, the Baals of the region, it's not Baal, it's Baal. All means Lord, and then the Ba is about master, the master and Lord, Baal, the Els, the gods, the master gods of the region. And I think that this is interesting, that God overloads them again with flies, sends them all everywhere, and Baal means master or Lord, and Arab is fly or beetle. So this is the master of the flies. And When God sends in these plague of flies, he's saying to Egypt, he's saying, look, Egypt, I am powerful over those you call master. This is a plague about lordship, I think. Israel, I am your lord. Okay, and there's a difference between... Is my volume too low? I'm seeing people make those comments. I should stop looking at my comments. Um, Maybe turn up your own volume? I'm clipping out here um, on my volume settings, but I'm trying to be attentive. So there we go. If it gets too clippy clipperson, then I will stop. But 
Back to this. That's the problem with doing a live study on the internet for someone like me that has a squirrel brain, because most of the time people don't talk in the middle of when I'm teaching. I love interactive studies, but I read random comments and it throws me off. But you guys are awesome. I'm not trying to ignore you on purpose. But so this thing about lordship, it's one thing to know about God. It's another thing to know who God is. And when you know who God is, that's just the beginning. Serving him is something different. There's a difference between being a servant and a son or a daughter, between a petitioner and a child of God. And I think at this moment, God begins to deal with lordship, that we don't just know about you. We're actually moving into sonship with you by learning how to follow and obey you. This is the, this is the, this is the child being instructed by God, lordship moment, okay? And I think that this is interesting because once God begins to deal with your trust and provision, he deals with your money, he begins to show you that he's powerful over life, he begins to breathe the dead things to life in you. This is like a conversion story, right? The whole world is falling apart. You don't have any money. You don't have a job. You can't take care of your own life. And then God brings life into your dust. And the moment that he breathes life into the dust of your life, you come into a new relationship with him. You come to know him. And what does he begin to teach you when you first know him? That he's Lord. That he is the master of your life. That you don't get to do your own thing. And that is not a curse. It's a blessing because your own thing got you where you ended up, which was unhappy, stuck, dusty, and dead, right? So when the Lord comes and says, I am your Lord, the scriptures here say that it wasn't duplicated, but the word here is that Goshen was made to be distinguished in that day. And if you look at the Hebrew, the word is ransomed, okay? The word is ransomed. So here at Lordship, ransomed means to purchase. You make a distinction by buying it and taking it out. And I love this word because at this particular moment in the collapse of Egypt, God is saying, I am paying for ransoming, bringing out, distinguishing my people. And it's at this crux of Lordship that that begins to happen. You can know about God. You can see his miracles. He can even bring the dead things to life in your life. But it's not until that you submit and he begins to reveal the fact that he is Lord that you get ransomed and that your life begins to look very different than the rest of the world. Okay. Did the Hebrews go through the plague of the Nile? Yes. Did the Hebrews go through the plague of the frogs? Yes. Did they go through the plague of the dust to lice to gnats? Yes. Did they go through the plague of the flies? No. That's where it stops for the Jewish people, for the chosen ones, for the sons of God. That's where it stops. God makes a distinction at the point of lordship. He ransoms his people and they no longer go through the same kind of terror that the culture that's collapsing and crumbling does. Okay, this is a big deal for where we are now. I do believe that we are supposed to stay in culture. 
that we're not supposed to get ransomed out and raptured off the planet so that when it gets really bad, nobody's here. I think that we are actually the ones in culture, but God is going to deal differently with us in in culture. So my phone just died, so I'm going to change. There we go. I have to use a mouse. So plague number five. This one is livestock are all struck dead. So if you look at this picture right here, you can kind of see it. Uh, This is a picture I took at the Met in New York. This is the ancient Egyptian god Apis, the male god. You can kind of see the male drawings, the anatomy there. But you look on his horns. He's got these two horns. You know, this is very crescent moony. And that's another story for another time. But when God comes and deals with the livestock all being struck dead, it's Apis and his cohort, Hathor. And Hathor is the female goddess. She's often represented as a cow. So Apis and Hathor were very well known, very well worshipped gods and goddesses in Egypt. Well, how did Apis and Hathor get worshipped? Well, it's interesting because they would take these cow gods and they would set up an altar to them. And in very classic Egyptian style, they would create an icon, place it on a pedestal, carve all around the pedestal, smaller images of all of that. And then in history, this was Apis and Hathor. This worship ritual was about drinking and rising up to play, the scripture says. This, This is the drunken sexual ethic of Egypt represented in Apis and Hathor. The sexuality of Egypt and the, and the just very different vision about what sex and sexuality is for, uh, it was very different with the Hebrew people than the Egyptians. And this god and goddess was the one that represented that in Egypt. And so when God comes to deal with the livestock, he is saying to Egypt that I detest your sexual practices and your drunken worship rituals. Israel, worship the only great I am. Right? And here's a distinction. And we have to make this distinction. We have to make this distinction in our lives, y'all. And it's not for prudish puritanical rituals that there is an actual difference between giving your body and your heart and your life to the one that you have covenanted with and then just pimping that out to the cheapest taker. There is a difference. Drunken sexual worship practices, they give birth to death. They don't liberate. The great liberation of the 60s didn't create happier, freer people. The sexual revolution created a bunch of dependent people, and it created a cascading effect of death in our nation. You know, and I do a lot in the pro-life world and have some friends that do a lot more than me. But it always just strikes me that we fight for life. I fight for life. I believe vote accordingly and active Prayed on Capitol Hill, worked with a friend that helped do the heartbeat bills all across the country. I advocate for that. But y'all, the reality here, if you are someone that is a pro-life believer or a pro-life voter, the reality, y'all, is that we wouldn't need abortion if we had the appropriate sexual and emotional relationships. 
Abortion is only necessary when your desires are out of control and your life has become unmanageable. And yes, I know that in cases of incest and rape, there are abortions and there are babies that are born in situations. And I also understand that children have birth defects, but none of those things are reasons to terminate a pregnancy. One of my greatest friends growing up was a family. They had a daughter who was brain dead and the doctors advised her to to have an abortion and they refused because of their faith. And this child came into the world totally brain dead in really a vegetative state. And she had a very specific condition. She never contributed anything. The doctor said she'd be alive for an hour and then it was five hours and then it was a week and then it was a month and then it was a year. This little girl named Abby lived 12 years and I used to nanny her family. And I have never seen a more powerful testimony of the value of human life than Abby who could do nothing for herself, but you felt a presence about her. Abigail French was her name. She lived 12 years on this earth, contributing nothing out of her own ability and everything through the power of the life that has nothing to do with the value you create when you produce and make and do all these other kinds of things. So I'm on a soapbox now about this, that this is not just an issue, y'all. This is about our hearts connected to God and each other and the devastating effects that when we let our sexuality rampant and we take off restraints thinking that we're going to liberate people, it has a cascading effect of 60 million deaths in America and a totally reprobate culture that doesn't understand we're in this mess because we can't control our desires because we don't even believe we should. Preaching to myself now. Goshen. Ransomed. Church of Jesus, please, please let God ransom you here. Your life should look different. And it's not just because the Bible said so. The Bible says so because this is the only place there's life. And I, for one, am tired of all the death. Goshen is ransomed. Plague number seven. Plague number six boils. All right. Viruses. So boils here. This represents in Egypt, the goddess Sekhmet. And I chose Sekhmet here. And I, when I did all this research 10 years ago, I was just fascinated with all this as I was sort of discovering it. Like I didn't read this in a book. I just was Wikipedia and the Jewish encyclopedia and encyclopedia Britannica's and all these ancient documents and things. And I found Sekhmet, the the boils, because this story goes is that Sekhmet, she's the lion fierce god. And she is the justice, the, the executor of judgment for the justice of Ra. And one of her primary stories goes that Ra gets angry with his people and he sends Sekhmet to send a plague of boils upon his people, Ra's people, upon the Egyptians, because they have transgressed God. So Sekhmet and the plague of boils was well known in Egypt to be a plague of justice from the high God, the sun God, Ra. So when God sends a plague of boils now, he's saying to Egypt, I am powerful over your judgments and your plagues, right? He's saying, I am the judge. I am the high king of heaven. I am the judge and the justice. 
Now, to Israel, he begins to talk to them about being a judge and that he will both be the judge and also be the healer. And we see this right when they come out of the Red Sea, he begins to reveal himself as the healer to heal them from the plagues. And that's a huge part of the scriptures and the revelation of God to heal people from sickness. But when I was first teaching this study, the Arab Spring was going on. And I remember so clearly um, Anderson Cooper. I, th- I think it was Anderson Cooper. I remember so clearly the story. I'm pretty sure it was Anderson. And he went over into Tahir Square, Tahir Square in Egypt, and he was accosted while he was reporting and he was punched in the face. And it was like this major international thing. And I felt bad for the guy, uh, but he he uh, he made quite a scene about it. Um, and but I remember thinking, see if that can change it. I remember thinking, man, it must be hard for an American, particularly an entitled media elite uh, to go over into a world where there just isn't the rule of law and there's no recourse for justice. Like who could Anderson Cooper sue during the Arab Spring when he's in a foreign country, right? He had no recourse of justice. And in America, in the litigious Western cultures, we are so like, oh, we're going to get you and we're going to bring you to justice. And, you know, I think it's important that we have justice. But if you're a slave in Egypt, someone can murder you and there is no justice. You just have to deal with it, right? There's no recourse to justice. So I think it's powerful that God sends a plague of boils upon Egypt, mirroring Ra's judgment on the Egyptians, and he spares his people because he is beginning to tell them, look, y'all, you don't have to live underneath the judgment and the justice of your government any longer. You can live under the justice of heaven. And he's teaching them that he's the judge. So Goshen... Well, it doesn't explicitly say in this particular um, uh, one, but I believe based on the testimony of the other plagues that Goshen was ransomed or spared or made a distinction on this day. All right. Plague number seven. This one here now, the scripture says that, um, that the Lord is now basically upping his game. He says, I am now bringing the full fury against Egypt. So the first six plagues were dealing with the systems, and now he's beginning to deal in the full fury, he says. Well, I think the full fury has to do with the fact that he's going after the god Set. And the god Set was a terrifying god. Set was the god of storms, wind, and chaos. If you were here for the second week last week, I told you the story of Isis and Osiris and their son Horus and connected that to Senmut. Set is the god that kills Osiris, hacks up his pieces and throws them up, you know, all over the underworld, scatters them. Set is a terrifying, chaotic god. So when God sends the plague of hails, he says, basically, all hail is going to break loose in Egypt. And this thunder, it comes and it decimates anything that's left in Egypt. It says that it took out all of the trees and all the branches and it killed all of the livestock and anything in all of Egypt that was out there died. And he specifically tells the Hebrews to go and tell your neighbors and to bring all your cattle indoors, right? This is coming. 
So what happens here is that when God sends the plague of hail, he is saying, all right, I'm dealing now with the chaos. One of the high gods of heaven, the God that dismembers and murders your other gods, the chaos and storms in culture and in the world and in your system that I am beginning to be more and more convinced that they're that there are manufactured cataclysmic events that just sow chaos into culture. And I'm inclined to think that it's both the demonic realms that do it and that they've got some pretty willing partners with a lot of humans because this kind of chaotic storm, humans create so much of that. And so God is saying to Israel, I'm the God of heaven. Trust me in your chaos. Right? So all of these things are happening in Egypt. Your economic system has been shaken. Your life has been shaken. You begin to see the plagues and all of the cattle are dead. You know, just from a natural disaster, you know, the Niles turned to blood. They weren't able to remove the blood. They were able to duplicate their own blood making, but they couldn't fix it, right? So the Niles turned to blood. There's all this nasty dead frogs. There's flies. All the livestock have died. And now the hail comes and kills any of the livestock that were, that were spared. It strips all the fruit trees. It takes out all of the stuff. And here's a fun little uh, factoid. Uh, in, in the scriptures, it says that it took out the the barley and the I'm pretty sure it was the rye, but the wheat and the linen, the spelt, the spelt, those were not destroyed because they weren't yet in ear. Why is that important? Well, the barley in the scriptures is a messianic picture. If you want to do a word study and you've got the tools, blue letter Bible, look up barley and then look at how barley is used in the Old Testament. And every instance that you see barley, it will be connected to a messianic story. Ruth, Gideon, Egypt. Okay. Now, wheat is about believers. I think this is about the infilling of the Holy Spirit and the harvest of people. But in the scriptures, there is the festival of first fruits. And there's a couple of first fruits. The first first fruits festival is happens during Pesach, and it is the first fruits of barley. And it's because barley comes into ear first. And it was the thing that was destroyed by name in the scriptures in plague number seven. And that's how we date Passover. Passover is in between barley and wheat, the barley and the wheat harvest, which happen about 50 days apart. So this plague takes out the barley, but the wheat is spared. I'll spare you the long teaching on that. So Goshen ransomed. All right, now we're getting up close here to the end. I'm chugging through this. Normally I take a little bit longer, but we're getting up here now to plague number eight. Maybe I'll show you some Googler stuff then. This is the devouring locust. So let's look at this just from a natural perspective. Like I said, think about the structure of Egypt that has all been decimated. Think about all of those things and then all the cattle and then all the fruit trees and all of the barley and everything has been stripped from the trees and destroyed, except by name wheat. And it's like the wheat is the only crop that's left in Egypt. Okay. 
So what comes next when the only thing that's left in all of Egypt is a little plant? The devouring locusts to come and destroy and take out everything that's left. Okay, so when God sends the devouring locusts, what he's actually targeting is Osiris and Isis. These are the gods, the royal pair that we just talked about. Set was the one that killed them, but he was below them. And now we're dealing with Osiris. And he was known as the god of the underworld because he was destroyed by Set, but also agriculture because agriculture was sustenance, life itself. Isis was a healing goddess, but she was also a goddess of agriculture because you needed a male and a female coupling to give birth to life and life was in the agriculture. And so these were the gods that dealt with the agriculture. So when all of these plagues and all of this awful things start rolling into Egypt, locusts come and destroy the remaining bread. That's the only thing that's left in Egypt bread. And now they have no bread. The scriptures say, I believe it was a strong east wind that blew these all away. So this message that God was giving to Egypt, fundamentally, it's about your grain and your physical nourishment, right? But I love this to Israel. I have to believe that they saw the fact that there was nothing left in Egypt except wheat. And then here comes the locusts. And God is saying to them, he's saying, Israel, I am your bread. Your lechem. I am the bread of life for you. Dealing with this. Goshen, again, doesn't specifically say whether they were spared or ransomed, but I believe that they were. All right, so now we're getting to our final two, and these are the big daddies. Number nine, the plague of darkness. This is what the Lord says. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness will spread over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. Okay, what kind of darkness do you feel? Spiritual darkness, right? Demonic darkness. Okay, this is not just a plague of a solar eclipse. It's not just a darkening of the sun, though I do believe that that's what happened. What they're talking about here is the dramatic release of spiritual wickedness in the land. The scriptures say, um, Jesus tells a story, a parable about this. And he says, it's not really a parable. He tells a story. He says that when a spirit goes out of a person, it wanders around in a dry and arid land looking for a place to rest. When it finds none, it goes back to the house, finding it clean swept, but empty. It returns and brings seven more, even worse than itself. We learn a couple of things in that passage. The one I want to point out is the fact that when you displace demonic powers from their geographic and spiritual high places, when you displace them, they wander out into the world creating havoc. So I believe that that's part of the chaos that we're feeling in America right now. Our idols have been destroyed. 
The gods of this world are being judged. I have been praying with many of you and many, many hundreds of thousands, probably millions of people around the world. We have been praying for exposure. And exposure means the illumination of demonic, spiritual wickedness, evil that is powered ultimately by idols and spiritual powers and principalities. And when we light that stuff up with the power of God, with the exposure of the anointing, with the exposure in the natural, these spirits get cast out. And then the whole world feels like it's dark. The whole world feels like it's under a cloud of heaviness. This is a darkness that you feel. Y'all, this is what was going on in Egypt at the time. And I think it's where we are in our nation. Actually, I think we're maybe moving out of this into plague 10. But this is definitely something that we've gone through during COVID. This is definitely something that we've gone through during the election season is that spiritual darkness has descended on our nation, not because President Trump is an evil leader, not because President Biden is an evil leader or a good leader, whatever. It's not because of the presidents. It's because God is exposing spiritual wickedness in your hearts, in my hearts, in the darkness, in the demonic structures in our governments and in our own states and households. God is exposing evil, exposing wickedness and dealing with it, setting us free. And when he sets us free, these spirits go out and this darkness begins to feel like it consumes us. Y'all, but plague number nine does deal with Ra, the chief deity, the sun god. And he has this encounter with Moses. And darkness descends in Egypt. But in Goshen, there was light. You like my graphics? Thank you. I had that professionally done by a CG animator. Not really. Y'all, when the darkness and the spiritual darkness descends upon the nation, in Goshen there was light. This is where I got the phrase, it's good to be in Goshen. Not because I want to get raptured out of culture, but because I believe that the believers in Jesus that have walked through the chaos and the trials and the things that just seem overwhelming, when the darkness descends upon the nation, you can live in the light. God has ransomed you and redeemed you. He has called you by name. You are his. It is possible to live in the middle of a crumbling system that is filled with spiritual darkness and live in the light. This is the inheritance of the sons and the daughters of God. We are the bringers, the carriers, the bearers, the torches that God lights and doesn't hide under a system of weights and measurement and, just, and, and judgment, a bushel. He sets us on a hill so that cities and nations can see that in Goshen, in the believers, in your heart, there is light. And while the world is in darkness, you are illuminated with the power and the life and the light of God. This is the Exodus story, y'all. This is what God is saying to us right now. Don't be afraid of the darkness. Yes, it's real. 
Yes, it's spiritual. Yes, it's because of bad government. But bad government happens because of bad hearts. And we got to deal with our hearts. And so when the bad heart meets the heart that was speaking life, he says this. Pharaoh says to Moses, get away from me. Take care that you don't see my face again. For on that day, Moses, you will die. I'm going to kill you, sucker. I don't want to see you again. Because I'm going to kill you. That brings us to plague number 10. Well, first, God's message. Egypt, I'm powerful over light and darkness. Israel, I am your light, your guiding light. We are the light. He is the light of the world. Goshen, ransomed. Ransomed. Distinguished. Paid for. Separated. Out. Free. Before they were free from Egypt, they were free from darkness. This gets us to the last one, y'all. The plague of the death of the firstborn. And I did this a little bit last week, but I know we got a few new people on here tonight, so I'm excited to be able to unveil this again so it doesn't spoil the punchline for you. In case you were wondering if I'm just trying to sort of cram this little category of all these gods, like where do you come up with this idea that every plague deals with a specific god? Well, it comes from this passage here in Exodus 12, 12, government, government. For I, the Lord, will pass through the land of Egypt that night, the plague of the firstborn, and I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human beings and animals. Okay, every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human beings and animals. On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. All the gods of Egypt. Okay, I didn't make this up. I didn't come up with the idea that every plague dealt with a god. The Bible did. Exodus 12, 12. It says, this plague deals with every god of Egypt. And I just applied the fact that, well, if the last plague deals with every god, maybe every plague dealt with some god. So we ask this question. How does the death of the firstborn deal with all the gods of Egypt? Well, For Egypt, here are some Egyptian firstborns. Horus, Set, Osiris, Thoth, Ra, Sobek, Crocodile God, Mut. We didn't talk about them. So these were all Egyptian firstborns. Some more Egyptian firstborns. King Tut, Pharaoh, God incarnate. He was a firstborn. He had to be a firstborn. That was part of his ruled willed power the entire egyptian ruling class was a firstborn the sacred cattle that were offered in sacrifices were firstborn everything in all creation worth anything to the egyptians was the firstborn that's the point the culture was built around the idea of the firstborns and so when the lord deals with the firstborns he is saying to them I am the Lord, the God who is embodied in front of you, the one that is inhabiting the place in front of you. I am the Lord. Now, here is something really awesome. Because Exodus 12, 12 deals with all the gods of Egypt. And then Exodus 12, 35, about there, you can go and read it, 35 into like 40-ish. It says this, 
It says, now, about midnight, Pharaoh awoke in his house, and he heard a great cry. In every house, there was not someone there was not someone who was dead, from the highborn to the lowborn, from the maid servants to the ruling class and the cattle. All of the firstborn in all of Egypt were dead. And I'm seeing this comment in the thread asking the exact firstborn question. Tricia, you get bonus points from the teacher. You get a gold star. She asked, if Pharaoh was a firstborn, why didn't he die? Was he the only one in all of Egypt that wasn't a firstborn or that was a firstborn that God missed? No, the point of this whole thing is that Pharaoh wasn't a firstborn. And this is the great exposure. And this is the thing that I continue to believe God for and pray for, is that the, the, the punchline of dealing with all the gods of Egypt, of collapsing this entire cultural world system, of setting the people free out of Egypt and getting the Egypt out of the people, is the final thing that happens is that this illegitimate, propped up sham of a leader, Pharaoh, is exposed as a total illegitimate ruler. And everybody sees it. Can you imagine what Egypt must be feeling like? They just watched their whole system get destroyed. They've watched all their sacred things. The gods are getting humiliated. And the only thing they have left is Pharaoh, raw incarnate, firstborn son of God in Egypt. And then they put it together that all the firstborns die. And there's Pharaoh sitting on his fake throne with his fake inauguration, being propped up, told what to say, what to do. It's all exposed as a sham government. Y'all, just so you don't think I'm talking about our current administration, I am talking about the way the enemy wants to rule us. Because when we discover the thing you were so terrified of, the darkness that you didn't want to face in your own soul. The reality, y'all, is the thing we most desperately want to find is found in the place we are least willing to look. Because we're desperate for it, but it means confronting the darkness in our own soul because we're terrified of what we're going to discover. Y'all, but the message of this scripture and the message of the Bible in totality, totality is this is that when you confront the darkness, you discover that it's an illegitimate ruler in your life and the power of God will expose it and liberate you and you will be free from its rulership in your life. That it's not some huge, massive, undeniably unbeatable system. At its very core, the enemy and his plans and tactics are illegitimate, fraudulent rulers. And when you let the king of kings, the ruler of creation of heaven and earth, sit on the throne of your life, the illegitimate rulers lose their power. And I love this story. And this is so much about where I believe we are also as a nation. Because we have to have illegitimate rulers exposed. We have to. And that means that Christians are going to be exposed for the deviant sexuality, the ways that they manipulated young people, 
and didn't pre- more than didn't practice what they preached, manipulated, oftentimes sexually manipulated people, manipulated money and finances. Christians are going to be exposed. In 2020, we saw a few of them. There's one that's happening right now. But it's not just us. But it's not not us, y'all. I'm talking to the choir right now. There may be some that are just listening to some guy ramble on about the Bible that don't believe in it. Uh, maybe. Um, but... Y'all, we're part of the problem. And if we want exposure, we got to be willing to be exposed. Don't sit from your intercession closet and pray down judgment and fire and exposure on the government if you're not willing to let God come and do it to yourself. And I'm not preaching now. I'm raging against what God's doing to me. He's exposing me. He's exposing my heart of things that I just, I didn't know they were there. And I'm quite honestly, pretty frustrated they are and wish he would leave me alone (laughs) because I was happy in my self-obsessed state. We were happy not knowing that we were desperately in need of God's saving. But y'all, we have to come out. We have to come out of Egypt. If we're going to bring revival that's already started in this nation, if you are a carrier of revival, then you've got to let God expose the idols in your life. You've got to wage war against the darkness in your own soul with the word and the blood of Jesus and let his victory wash over you so that you can get set free, so you can get busy doing the work of the kingdom, which is leading many people home to the Father through the way you love and give and speak online. Y'all, that's what God's doing. That's what's going on in this country. And it looks chaotic and it looks like it's a political battle and there's all kinds of junk. But what's really going on is God is exposing our hearts to kill the idols in our lives and to liberate us so that we can worship him. Really worship him. Not just with fog machines and fat, sick, wet electric guitar reverb, which I love. Worship giving your life and your soul to God, giving your heart to him, not just claiming him with your lips as a cultural believer, not just voting the Bible, but actually encountering the one who lived and wrote the scriptures, the one who is the scriptures. So that's what the plagues of Egypt are about, y'all. They happened. They happened in Egypt. They happened with precision. They happened to deconstruct a system starting at the bottom and working its way up to the top. And God is then saying, when you get to the top, the foundation crumbles. Illegitimate ruler. The devil doesn't have a hold on your life. Ultimately, Jesus has already won that. And I'm going to do a little preaching right now. Jesus has already won the victory. The devil has no more authority to claim the sons of God. If you repent and confess your sin and declare love in life and belief in Jesus, he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all the unrighteousness that you've experienced, all of your past, everything that you've done. Maybe you had an abortion. Maybe you've participated for most of your life in Apis and Hathor worship rituals. Maybe you thought that was the only way to get any guys to notice you. Maybe you are hoarding your wealth and you're so angry that other people don't have it. Or maybe you're so angry that people are hoarding it and you don't have it. Whatever's going on in your life, Jesus has given you an opportunity to know him that will set you free. Not 
totally transform every moment of your life. Like he doesn't immediately fix all the problems. He liberates our spirits and our hearts in the darkness that we feel and shows us something that this thing that you thought you could never get over or never get free from, he's already set you free. He's liberated you. And the thing that was so terrifying is really just an illegitimate ruler in your life. And so I just want to call us all, myself included, and anybody that's still here listening. We've got about 400 people still here listening. Y'all, wage war on the idols in your life. They can be big idols, but the big ones are usually the little ones that you don't want to talk about. If someone you love starts to give you feedback that you know is right, but it makes you so mad, you may have an idol. So I'm so grateful. Let's pray. Let me pray here. King Jesus, we thank you, God, that you do love us and that you do know us, God, and that you are coming to set us free. Father, thank you so much that you have paid the price for us, God, but that you didn't just substitutionally and positionally atone and justify us. God, you moved into our midst. You gave us your spirit, God, to indwell us, to reveal truth and life to us, to lead us, to guide us, to heal us, to provide for us. God, you haven't left us to our own devices and disappeared into the third heavens waiting for the second coming. You are present among us, God. And we ask, God, that you would be present in increasing ways as we submit and yield and say yes to you and say yes to your restorative salvific work. All the big fancy words that just mean fixing up and restoring the brokenness. Thank you, God, for restoring brokenness. Thank you, God, for giving freedom and peace. And I just pray right now in Jesus' name over any person that has been that's listening or knows. Let's pray right now for people that are troubled mentally, that are having difficulty either with psychological disorders or depression and having thoughts of suicide. I grew up from the time of 12 to 21 on Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil, the first generation Prozac baby. I know what it's like to have pain in the brain and squirrels that you can't fix. But God, I pray in Jesus' name right now, living God, that you would send your spirit out in tangible manifest ways over anybody that is struggling with thoughts of suicide, people that are struggling with physical, mental disorders, God, the physical chemical imbalances. And in Jesus' name, I pray a release of the healing virtue of Jesus Christ over the mind and the physical trauma from chemical imbalances. And I declare healing in Jesus' name. We ask, Father, according to the covenant promises of Scripture, that by your stripes we have been healed, that you would heal the minds and the chemical imbalances in the bodies and the serotonin, uans, serotonin system and the dopamine inhibitor systems and the neurological transmitters, God, that you would just Heal those things right now in Jesus' name. That you would block off all of the all of the inappropriate neurological endorphins and things that are moving in the system, God. You would block those in Jesus' name. And God, you would heal and restore the appropriate systems in the body. Father, we declare in Jesus' name, Father, both 
the reality of the way that you have made our bodies and that science is helping us understand how these chemical neurological systems work. And Father, we affirm science and we affirm biology and we affirm the power of the spirit. Father, we speak right now to the spirits of depression. And I command you to go now in Jesus' name over everybody that suffers with depression, over everyone that suffers with bipolar, schizophrenia, or ADHD, any of these cognitive disorders, you spirits go now in the name of Jesus. And I release the power of God and the life of God over everyone that struggled with this, that you would feel now a touch from the living God. Father, And we plead the blood of Jesus over everyone that has struggled with these thoughts and even those that are contemplating suicide right now. Father, we plead your blood over their hearts. We plead your blood over their lives, God, that in the spiritual transaction of your coming in power to do what you said, God, that you would set these people free, just like you set me free. God, you set them free now in Jesus' name. Father, I ask that you would come and comfort your kids. We celebrate Jesus, the liberation from fear and bondage. We celebrate God, the healing. We celebrate God, that you would stop Jesus. You would stop these 200 suicides a day during COVID. Father, that you would stir up our hearts to know how to love well, to go out and rescue. But God, we need a touch. These people need a touch from you. So we ask you, God, for that. And we believe you, Jesus, for that. And make us your hands and your feet to love and to touch people. Show us how to do that, Jesus. We bless you, King Jesus. We love you, living God, most holy one. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, I'm going to take a look at some comments here. I saw a couple of things, um, a couple of comments um, were about how long did the plagues happen? Like, what was the timeline for these 10 plagues? Um, We don't specifically know. Uh, the only thing that we get from the scripture as far as a timeline is what I said in plague number seven. So we do know that plague number seven destroyed the barley that was, excuse me, destroyed the barley that was in, in ear. So that dates the plagues to the springtime, March, April. And that's why the Passover Seder meals and the springtime, the first of the year, the beginning of the of the new year is not in January. For the Jewish people, it's not in January. And Rosh Hashanah is the beginning of the civil new year. But the scriptures say the beginning of years and months for you is in the beginning of Passover. And so that happens in March or April, usually, according to the lunar calendar. So my guess is that this is probably a couple of month period. I don't believe it was over a long period of time, like a year or two. And I don't also don't think it was back to back. That's just kind of my sense or opinions about it. So we don't know exactly how long it happened, but I sort of operate under the fact that it was about two to three months. Um, if anybody has some questions, um, you can put something in the comments. I'm going to stream through a couple more minutes. We're basically done with the study, so we don't need to still and sit on here. But if you guys do have any questions, uh, let me show you this number again, actually. Um, let me go back to this. Let me go back, get my community number up. Um, you can text this. Uh, 
If you're in the U.S., just do 770. You don't need the plus and the one. If you're not in the United States, um, this is a U.S. text number. So um, you'll have to pay whatever charges. Some people are saying, I've heard you say that this wasn't, uh, it didn't really work for you. Uh, it's a newer service. It's called Community. So I'm not exactly sure how it all works yet, uh, even though I am a tech guy. So Text this number, text Exodus to it, and I'll be able to just text message you. Again, you're not giving me your cell phone number, okay? Don't use your landline to text. Use your cell phone if you got texting service. You won't give me your number. I don't have your number. I have a service that tells me your name, and then I'm able to communicate with you on your phone. So, um, oh, Vicky, good question. Why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Oh, I love that question. I forgot. I usually talk about that. So great question. This is one of my favorite things about the Exodus. I can't believe I forgot it. So the scripture says God hardened Pharaoh's heart a bunch. Um, I think it's maybe a, a half a dozen. Um, but there are three different Hebrew words Three different Hebrew words. I'm trying to look at the camera because I know it's distracting when I'm like, oh, what's that? It's like I have a lazy eye. But there's three different Hebrew words for harden. Okay, the primary one that gets used most frequently in this Exodus passage. Again, I could do an hour long teaching on this very topic, but I'll spare you. The primary word is the word chazak. Okay, and it means to strengthen. And in Israel today, when when God tells um uh, Joshua to go into the land. He says, be strong and courageous. And the Hebrew words are chazik chazak. Be strong and courageous. Chazik chazak. And when I was in Israel and we were hiking up the snake trail up Masada, and we saw this at the Rodia and we saw it at Masada, there were rabbis with all of their tamaid, their, their trainees, followers. And we were walking up the hill and a couple of our group would yell out, chazik chazak. And all of these Jewish boys would yell, it's like a rallying cry. It's sort of like, you know, a military march, strong and courageous. Okay. So what does that have to do with Pharaoh? Texting number, promo, shameless plug. But what does that have to do with Pharaoh? Well, um, the, the idea that you strengthen something, you know, in college, I was an athlete and I won't tell you what sports I played because you'll laugh at me. Um, volleyball, frisbee and cheerleading. But we had we had weight days, weight training days all the time. And when we went and did bicep curls, you know, if I do a bicep curl, I'm not expecting that my calf muscle is going to grow. OK, I strengthen the muscle that exists in the place that I'm strengthening it. Right. It's basic. Well, this is what's going on with Pharaoh. This is what happened. This is what happens when you wrestle with God. When you wrestle with God and you contend, the thing that's actually really inside of you grows. Okay. When Jacob wrestles with God and becomes Israel, he wrestles with God and walks with a limp, but he walks out of that the grabber. He goes in, Jacob, the grabber, I contend, and he comes out Israel, God contends for you. Okay? What, what was in Jacob strengthened when he wrestled with God and he became Israel. So one of things going on here with Pharaoh is that when it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, 
Pharaoh's not this passive observer with this angry, malevolent God who's trying to use Pharaoh as a puppet, this innocent little Pharaoh ruler. No, what the scripture's saying there is there's this dynamic exchange that happens when you wrestle and contend and reject God. And this is why rebellion against God repeatedly, repeatedly is dangerous because you're demonstrating in your continual rebellion that your heart is hard and rebellious, that it's prideful, that it's set on yourself and against the things of God. That's why it's dangerous because you're strengthening the hard, alone, anti-God, self-glorifying places when you rebel and wrestle and don't submit. So this is what I believe was happening for Pharaoh. He was encountering God and he was just getting harder. And the darkness and the self-hatred and the pride, whatever was living in his life, it just grows. So um, that is what I think is going on there for hardening of the heart. Um, Beth asked this question about Goshen being ransomed. Did you say that Israel did not experience the plagues? Well, plagues one, two, and three, Israel did experience. Plagues four and on, they didn't. Now, there was a measure. Um, they did experience. What do I mean by experience? Right? So um, I would say this, that everybody experienced Passover. But anybody that listened to the voice of God, that painted blood on their doorposts and made the sacrificial lamb, anybody, didn't have to be a Jew, Jewish person or a Hebrew, anybody that did that was spared. So they all experienced it, but God made a distinction. He ransomed them. Um, the hail falls on the scriptures do say, they tells the, the, the Hebrews to go pull in their livestock. Okay, so he tells them that it's coming. And so they didn't experience it. They lived through it, but they didn't have the same experience that everybody else had. Um, the scriptures do say there was no, there was light in Goshen um, and that God made a distinction. So it may be sort of parsing of words, uh, but I do believe fundamentally that if you're a believer in Jesus, you have a different reality ahead of you when God comes to deal with idols and wickedness in your nation. You've got a different reality. The economic shaking we all go through, the issues surrounding life in the earth we all go through. Everybody dies, the plague of dust and gnats, but God brings death to life. But when we move into lordship, that's when we begin to get ransomed and a distinction begins to get made in our sexual ethos, in the way that he provides for us, in the way that we experience spiritual darkness and the bread of life. Like those are those are things that we experience different. Hope that made sense. Um, can you show us the Google Earth maps where these plagues in Egypt took place? Um, there's not really. Um, I mean, it's just basically Thebes and Memphis. I do have a, a fun little Google map thing about um, uh, Joseph and some of these spots, but maybe I'll do that another night. I don't have it all set up. It'd take too much dead air to get it get it working. Um, 
Bonnie, do you believe there's any connection between the Hebrews going through the first three plagues, then being ransomed in the Great Tribulation when the seals are opened? Bonnie, what a great question. Another gold star question. So, um, and this is connection. Um, Wally asking, did you say you don't believe we will be raptured? Um, you actually wrote ruptured, which I think is funny, uh, <laughs> but I know you meant raptured ruptured. Um, well, those are both connected. So the reason that I study the Old Testament and the scriptures in general, but the Old Testament in particular, is that I'm a prophetic person. I have a prophetic gift because I know the gift giver and he gave one. And I think we all can be prophetic and hear God's heart for what's coming and who we are. I may do a teaching after this. Um, I kind of like the Monday night Bible study. So I may do a teaching about the prophetic. Uh, I think that there's, it's a risky subject right now because there's been a lot of misuse and cultural attention drawn on the YouTube prophets. Um, but why was I talking about prophecy? Um, Oh, yes. So that's why I study the Old Testament, because I want to be able to get in touch and get familiar with the aspect of God that prophesies. Okay, because I do believe prophecy exists and it's for now and that the book of Revelation is an apocalypsis, an unveiling, revealing of something that's yet to come. Now, we look ahead dimly through a veil, but we look back with 2020 vision when we begin to understand the scriptures. So to understand the book of Revelation and the tribulation and the scrolls and the seals and ex and Revelation 12, when the woman that gives birth to the male child and the dragon comes and pursues her and the great eagle comes and takes her out into the wilderness to a place prepared by God for her for a time, times, time and a half. Like all of that language is Exodus language. And if you want to understand Revelation, you've got to get the Exodus. Because the Exodus story and the event is so deeply rooted into John's apocalyptic revelation. And so you do need to understand, like Kathy is saying, you're right. Um, Kathy, you're probably a, a, a Revelation Bible teacher um, with that statement. You have to understand Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, and Malachi. I think that you're right. Right? So... All of the understanding revelation is built upon the revelation of the heart of the father that begins to get unveiled in the Old Testament. And then we can see how it's connected to the prophets. But the Exodus is the foundational story for the book of Revelation. And I do think there's a connection between the scrolls and the seals. And I do know that there's a lot of different versions about when the tribulation happens. And is there a rapture? Do we get raptured? Um I am I am not firmly in the rapture camp. Uh, I think the whole idea that God is taking his believers out of the moment that we're most needed. Um, but admittedly, I have not spent a lot of time studying Revelation. So I'm not the best one to weigh in on whether the rapture happens or when it happens. Is it pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib? Are you a pan-millennialist, Darbyist? Um Honestly, here's my thoughts on, on all of that. I think it's fascinating and interesting. I haven't pursued it as a matter of study or a devotional life practice for me because I've gotten caught up and stuck trying to do the things that Jesus said to do that I'm not very good at. 
So before I try and figure out what's going to happen after I'm dead to the world that I leave behind, I'm trying to understand what do I do with my life according to what God has said. That doesn't mean that the study of eschatology is not good. Um, that's just sort of where I find myself. So some good questions. All right. So we are approaching about two hours and my voice is getting tired. Uh, I'm so grateful that y'all joined me that stayed on for a couple of hours. Um, Oh, that's a good comment. Bonnie's got some wisdom. The wise virgins in Matthew. Um, that's such an important scripture, y'all. And I'm not saying that because I don't read the book of Revelation, I don't think about what's ahead. Like I do read Revelation, I understand it. Um, but I'm not, I'm not like an end times prophecy person. Like I would probably never do a study on the book of revelation because I'm not the most knowledgeable, but I do, I do believe it's incredibly important to prepare yourself for the coming of Jesus. Cause I do believe he is coming, right? I'm a pan millennialist. It'll all pan out. Right. But I do believe he's coming. And I do believe the clear words of Jesus. I think it's Matthew 25 when he talks about the parable of the wise virgins is that, you can't go and get the anointing in the presence of God from somewhere else. You've got to prepare yourself. That, that wise virgin story is immersed in the Hebrew bridal covenantal history and language. And that's, that, that'd be a fun study too. Just to, if you haven't studied the bridal covenant and all of the pieces, that language that Jesus uses and that John the Baptist uses, that I must decrease more of me, more, less of me and more of him. Um, I'm going to the father's house to prepare a place for you. Do not worry. I'm coming again. Like all of that language Jesus uses is bridal covenant, Jewish bridal language. And it's such a beautiful story and a beautiful teaching. And maybe I'll do that at some point. Um, but that's great. All right. I'm going to cut it off. So thank you all. Really appreciate y'all's engagement uh, with all of this. If you can. Text Exodus to this number here so I can stay connected with you. Um, Again, I am, uh, you know, I'm in my very early 40s. I'm not over the hill yet, but I am laying on top of it, peeking at it, and my kids are trying to push me over it. Um, but I come from a generation that grew up with technology. I am a technologist, and I'm trying to implement and utilize technology to its fullest. Uh, this service is one of those things, and and I know many of you are don't have the same life experience of using technology. So if you get something and it doesn't work, I'm really sorry. I'm trying to make it accessible, but I can't give you tech support. Um, so when I send out the links to the PDFs, uh, if you're on a phone, usually many of you will be on a phone. Uh, when you click on it, you'll have to enter in a password and the password is case sensitive. Okay. So capitals and I'll make it easy, lowercase, not too crazy. And you can download it in Safari or Chrome on a, on a browser. If you're on your desktop, it's really easy. It just comes down into your desktop folders and you can have it. Uh, but this PDF link that I'll send out after this, Please don't share it on social media. This is for your personal study. Um, many of these images are images that I took and it's, it's just for you. It's my way of saying thank you for connecting and engaging. So thank you all very much. God bless you all. And we will see you again next week. Bye.